Father, we come before you this morning, um, God, simply in awe of who you are, uh, that you have invited us in um, to know you, to worship you, uh, to glorify you. And Father, we uh, stand in awe as we stand before you. Uh, songs that we just sang, lyrics, God, I pray that you'd impress upon our hearts and our minds and our lives. Now do the same with your word. Holy Spirit, take these truths and uh, make them real to us. Uh, shake us, shape us, uh, transform us. Uh, again, for the glory of your Son, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, good morning. Uh, welcome to the Parks Church. Uh, this is actually our final online-only uh, service. We are going to continue to do these online services for the foreseeable future, uh, so no worries if you're staying at home. Uh, we'll, we'll still have these, but uh, we are beginning our in-person gatherings next week, May 31st, and so uh, just a few things as way of announcement around those. We do need you to uh, sign up, and the reason for these sign-ups are because we're restricted uh, based upon our, our multiple venues uh, to occupancy and size like that, so we need to know uh, that you're coming. We hope that you'll join us if you're comfortable to do so, but we do need you to sign up. So please do that. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We are actually going to cover the whole chapter this morning, the whole chapter. And so a lot of verses, so a lot of text, but I, I think the sermon itself will actually be shorter. And so Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 1. So uh, I've been watching the Last Dance, like many of you have been, right? The uh, kind of documentary on uh, Michael Jordan, his final season, things like that. And so this idea of epic clashes has, has really been in my mind as I've even looked at this text in Acts. And, and to be honest, this passage is about a rivalry. It's about a, a, a clash, a clash that has been going on since the beginning of time. And it's the clash between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. Now hear me, uh, these uh, clashes are not against two equal opponents. One stands uh, in a category all by himself, but that still doesn't stop opposition. And as we've walked through the book of Acts, we have seen opposition, we have seen persecution. And the reality is, and what we need to understand even as we get into Acts chapter 12 is this, if we are going to live faithfully as a community and as individuals for Christ and to Christ, then there is going to be opposition. Though the opposition may be great, as we'll see even in this passage, as the persecution may be great, Jesus is always greater. That we have confidence in opposition as we walk through these things, that the, the, the battle, right, wages, the war wages on, right? It rages, it continues, but the final victory is already set in place. And so that's the confidence that we approach even texts like this. And so uh, this is a very honest text. This is a very honest place in, in scripture. And, and that's very good news because what we see is that truth, the truth of God prevails even in this opposition. So let's, let's look at the first thing. And, and really, we're going to break this into three sections. And I'm going to just let the text really speak for itself because it does that. There are really uh, three sections. The first is verses 1 through 5. And that's where we see this, uh, this evil attack. And so let's look at it. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 5. And it says this, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, so so here we see the opposition very clearly. And in the Bible, and just for clarity, there are four Herods uh, mentioned, uh, particularly in in the New Testament. This is a different Herod than maybe we have seen in in the Gospels. This is Herod Agrippa I, and we're going to find out at the end of Acts chapter 12 what happens to him. But the reality is that they all hate Jesus. They all oppose the, the way of Christ. And so Herod, or the Herods, they were ruling over Jerusalem. And they were ruling over Jerusalem with the power of Rome behind them. And so Herod here, the, the reason he is, he is attacking and he's going after Christians is, is twofold. One, it's to um, show Rome that he's not going to allow this group of growing Christians to run the show politically. Herod was very political. But it also, he's kind of riding the fence here, it was also to show the Jews that this uh, upshoot from them who believe in the Messiah were not going to... Um, We're not going to thwart what they were even wanting to do. And so here he is appeasing to both. He's very political, right? He's playing both sides uh, of the aisle here. And so what we find is Herod killing James. James, um, this is the uh, brother of John, as it says. And in the Gospels, it says it's the son of Zebedee. You might remember them as as the sons of thunder. Uh, This is not James, who we'll read about later in in Acts chapter 12. Uh, James, that is actually the half-brother of Jesus who leads the church in Jerusalem. But this was one of the earliest followers of Jesus, James, who was a leader in the church, an apostle. Um, he He is killed. And one of the things I want us to notice here is the different approach that Herod is taking as opposed to Saul before his conversion and how he's trying to stop the church. Saul, the Bible says, Acts says, he went house to house trying to persecute the Christians. Herod, what he's doing is he's going straight to the top. And so he takes James, one of the leaders of the early church, and he kills him. And Acts here at 12 says that it pleased the Jews. It pleased them, so therefore he sees that this plan, at least on the surface, this opposition is working because this this majority of Jews are now pleased with what Herod is doing in killing James. And so he goes after the leader. He says, well, James is a leader, but let's go after the top. Let's go after Peter. And so he imprisons Peter thinking that this is the way that we'll demoralize. This is the way that we will stop the church of Jesus Christ. This is the way that we'll stop the way of Jesus is that we'll knock out and kill all of the leaders. But he can't kill Peter immediately. And the reason he can't kill Peter immediately is because they're at the season of Passover. And, and, and Jewish law was that you, you could not take the life of someone during Passover. So what Herod has to do, and this is all God's sovereign plan, he has to I- imprison him. And even this is a show of just kind of like a spectacle uh, before the people, that, that Peter is there sitting in prison, Herod's flexing his, his muscles during Passover, that, that what's coming for Peter is, is imminent death, so he thinks. And, and so Peter sits there. Peter's sitting there in prison. That's what Peter's doing. But what does Acts chapter 12, verse 5 say that the church is doing? That the church is doing during this persecution, during this time of opposition? Verse 5. 
earnest prayer for him, for Peter, was made to God by the church. So this immense amount of persecution, this immense amount of opposition, here is the activity that the church finds themselves doing, praying. Praying earnestly, contending for Peter, asking that God would free him, would save him. They know what has happened to James. They, they don't want it to happen to Peter. And so the church finds themselves praying. Is there any better way or is there any better thing that the church could find themselves doing? No, there's nothing better that the church could be doing other than praying. However, hear me, our impulse typically, even as the church, even as Christ's followers, is not to go to earnest prayer first, but it's to, to begin to think and devise plans or methods, right? Or to bear arms against those who are opposing or to, to protest, right? And again, I don't want to talk about the validity of those. I want to talk about the supremacy of those. Those cannot be supreme. That cannot be your go-to. The go-to for the church, the go-to for the people of God is this, it is contending prayer before God, pleading that he might move. Why? Why would that be primary? That's primary because that shows where our true belief falls about who's really in control of this. If I turn to plans, my plans, my devices, if I turn to me bearing arms, where, where is my true faith? My true faith is, is more in me than in God. And what prayer shows is that we are coming, we are contending before the one who has all control and all power. You see, I think this, this, these five verses show us something. One is this, the first, that opposite, opposition is inevitable. And to be honest, if you are following the way of Jesus, Jesus himself says that persecution and opposition is going to come, both back here in the early church and for us as a church, as Christ followers today. God uses both, both martyrdom, like with James, and miracle, which we'll see here in a bit, to advance his gospel and his mission. The second point uh, I think this small little section underlines is this, is that we don't fully understand and we will never fully understand the ways of God. His ways are truly higher. His, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so that is even more the reason to come before him even a question as I approach this passage that, that we don't have an answer for is why, why did James have to die? Why did James die and Peter didn't? Why was Peter the one who was released? We don't have answers to that and, and God hasn't given us answers for everything. But what he has given us, hear me, is his son, Jesus, and a promise that changes our perspective on everything that he says he will never leave us or forsake us, and that one day the final victory from him will come. But along the way, there are going to be moments, moments of opposition, moments of, of questioning or of doubt, things that we aren't privy to the answers to. But we have to trust in what and who God has given us, and that is Christ. And I think also that this passage very practically calls us to prayer. Like, how do you regard prayer? That is the people of God's, that is the church's primary weapon, if you will, against opposition. And, and, and we must confess that too often we don't wield or yield the, the, the right weapon. That we go to the things that are, are in our own strength and our own power and our own intellect before prayer 
Church, may we return to being a people who earnestly combat the kingdom of darkness with prayer. John Stott, um, to close this, this scene, he says in his commentary, he says, indeed, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat, although with the assurance that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail against, the, against Christ's church since it is built securely on the rock and the rock is Jesus Christ himself. That's our hope. That's our security. Even as we read about passages, even as we, we experience things in our own church and in our own life that are meant to rock us, we are certain of Christ. Okay, so let's keep reading because it doesn't just end with this evil event. It continues and we see uh, the Lord's rescue. Verse six, and this is gonna be a long section. Verse six through, through verse 19 is, is the Lord's rescue. And now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the doors, the, the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that he, that he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. All right, pause there. We're, we're a little bit in the middle of the scene. Okay, remember the season. Remember the time that we are at in this passage. It is Passover, right? Going all the way back to the Jewish celebration of where God delivered or rescued his people out of uh, Egypt, okay? And so here we are again in a place where, where Peter is imprisoned, right? At the hands of an evil tyrant. What just took place? God delivered his man. He delivered Peter from the hands of an evil tyrant. This also is a section of scripture and even very serious commentators will, will note how humorous this section is. And, and there's some humor here and some humor in the, the one I'm gonna read. And it's okay to take that, that angle because I think Luke is actually bringing that to the surface. And the first thing is this, that, that I want you to see in this section is that Peter was sleeping. Okay, he's in prison. He knows the outcome that, that, that was true for, for James. He believes without a shadow of a doubt, no doubt, that that is also most likely coming for him, and he's sleeping. Like he's sleeping between two soldiers. He's not fretting. He's not pacing. He's sleeping. Like I think that this highlights God's peace. Truly, that, 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 that cliche phrase, that it's only cliche because we use it a lot and don't believe it, that God's peace passes all of our understanding. Peter is experiencing that. That his peace is understood by him, Peter, being able to sleep in his jail cell, in this prison cell, with, with, with most likely his imminent death on the horizon. 
he's sleeping. Um, I, I don't know about you, but um, I, I've heard from a lot of people that um, a lot of you have trouble sleeping, right? Like you just have trouble f- sleeping for whatever, whatever reason. And for many of you, it's, it's, it's that idea of anxieties. It's the idea of, of stress, of those things in your life that, that you just can't turn off. You can't shut off your mind as you, as you lay in bed to rest. And some of you probably in your living rooms are nodding right now. Or you're resonating in your hearts with, with even that very practical reality. Like, I, I just, my prayer for you, even as I was writing this, this message, is that God would give us his peace through rest. That God, even in this season of, of uncertainty and unknown, that his peace, the peace of God, would, would, would wash over us and just allow us to rest again, even physically. But it wasn't just physical rest. And I think what's, what's funny about this is how, how hard the angel had to work to wake him up. That, that literally it says that the behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and it struck him. He says he struck Peter on the side, waking him. And the idea in the original language was that it was a repeated striking. Like, I don't know what was going on with Peter, but he was in a deep sleep. So the angel of the Lord is like shaking him and he says to him, hey, get your clothes on, right? Get dressed, we're getting out of here. And it says that the chains fell off of Peter. Now, this is an important thing biblically because this is the MO for our God, that he is a God who sovereignly breaks chains. He is a God who is in the business of setting us free through the power of his Holy Spirit in Christ's name and for Christ's name. And so we see that here with Peter. This is not just the peace of God and allowing Peter to rest, but now we see the grace of God. Notice that Peter is absolutely a recipient of everything going on, right? Peter didn't pull off his chains. Peter didn't pry them off. They fell off. And also when Peter is leaving the prison, it says something very interesting. Uh, Check this out. It says that as he was leaving, that the gates went open on their own accord. That original word here, on their own accord, is the word where we get automatically. So the gates didn't fly open because the the angel burst through them or because Peter, man, strength them through there. No, they burst open because God sovereignly caused them to go open. This is the same idea of the stone in front of Christ's tomb when it rolled away at God's call, in God's providence, in God's plan, it was that this stone would roll away. And so we see these gates opening so that Peter might walk through them. This is a picture of God's grace. This is what God not only does physically here, but he does for us spiritually, that the chains of sin fall off of us because of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the gate or the block that was before us to have fellowship with God is kicked open by Christ but at God's doing. This passage is just a picture, one, that God absolutely answers prayer. Remember the church, what are they contending for? God, release Peter. God, free him. God, 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 go before him. And what happens? God answers and Peter is walking free. But this also shows God's immeasurable power that Paul writes about in Ephesians. And I think this is, this whole passage really is a picture of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. It says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations for forever and ever. Amen. If there is a picture of that, 
that. It is this scene right now. Incredibly evil opposition, but the power of God superseding and prevailing like it always does over it, kicking the gates open, freeing Peter from his chains that bound him. Listen, may this encourage us to bring these kind of petitions before the Lord. And so let, let, let's find out what happens in the rest of, uh, of this scene. And so let's pick up in verse 12. And so Peter's free, and now here, here's where he goes. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But monitoring to them with his, his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the, to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over, over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. All right, so Peter, he's freed miraculously from prison. Where is the first place he goes? He goes to the house of Mary. Interestingly, that he would just know to go to Mary's house. It's like she had, or, or this, this house had a reputation where there would be a large gathering or there would be a gathering of believers so much so that Peter knew, I'm gonna go to that house. And picture this scene. This is where this scene kind of gets humorous, right? Peter's out there knocking at the gate. The servant girl who had been assigned to kind of watch the gate uh, comes up, hears his voice, recognizes it, doesn't go, come on in, but leaves him at the gate and goes in. Right? And no one believes her, right? I, I don't know what kind of reputation Rhoda had, but, but she goes in and everybody's like, no, no way. Like, you have lost your mind. Or they go, hey, it's his angel. And this gives me a little hope, right? That even faithful, uh, prayer-filled churches uh, can still struggle in believing that God has intervened miraculously sometimes, right? Like, but they then see Peter, right, come in and they are like freaking out, rightfully so, that God has just delivered him from prison. And Peter does what's, you know, natural here. He's like, it says that he quiets him down. He's like, shh, quiet. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm still a fugitive, right? I still just broke out of prison by the grace of God. So quiet down. And he explains to them, he gives testimony to the story of God and what God has just done in freeing him. It's this incredible scene. And then he says, tell, tell James, and this is a different James. This is not the James who, who has died. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's the, the, the leader of the church in, in Jerusalem. And so, um, as I came to the, the, just this, this part of the text, I, I was overwhelmed um, with the confidence in God. Right? Like, and oftentimes, I'm like the people who go, that's crazy. Like that, that, that didn't happen. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm right. I'm, I'm skeptical of it. But then when, when Peter stands before them, they're in awe. They're in awe, not, not just that Peter's there, but of what God has done, that God has answered. May this stir up within us, church, a, a childlike faith in our Father who responds, 
our Father who hears us when we pray, that he would give us a simple and sincere faith in him to pray, to trust, to, to believe, even like a child, even, even to sleep, right? Like, like we go back to that idea, to sleep and rest like a child, knowing that our Father is in control. I, even last night, as I, was, I, I, walked, I walked our second child into their bedroom, they share a room, and my son Mac was just out cold in his bed, right? It was like, I looked at him and I was like, bro does not have a care in the world, right? Why? Because he trusts his father, right? One of the reasons he trusts his father that everything's taken care of for him. He just lays there and he rests, right? I wanna be like that before my father, our heavenly father, who says, though the waves may crash, I'm in control of everything. And so here's what I want us to do really quickly is pause around this question. Is there something in your life particularly right now, right? And, and try to think outside of maybe COVID or the, the virus or things like that, that particularly are causing you anxiety, stress, concern. Um, maybe things that are, are making you, you, you lose sleep. Um, and if you're at a place where you can discuss those, discuss them. But the most important thing you could do is take them to the Lord in prayer right now. And listen, you don't need to make that a long drawn out thing, but submit them corporately, right? With your family, with your spouse, with your roommate, right? Even if you're watching this individually before the Lord right now, the place that they belong. So we'll pause, you do that, then we'll, we'll finish up quickly. So, so let's, let's wrap this, uh, this up. And, and here's the, the final point or the final scene is the final word. And the final word is not, not Herod. The final word is always the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And let's, let's read it in verse 20 through 25. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, 
They asked for peace because their country depended on the king, king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. All right, here, here it is. And I, again, the text speaks for itself. Herod thought he was in control. Herod put on display right here uh, the arrogance of man. And, and before we knock Herod too hard, this is the, the, the driving motivation of all of our hearts, all of our desires, apart from the revolution of Jesus Christ in our lives. All of us, apart from Christ, desire to be worshipped. We just see it very explicitly here in Herod. But what happens? The final word. The final verdict is this, Herod, you are not God, I am God. And Herod, as he received this worship and gloated about himself in arrogance, God struck him dead. You see, we were made for glory, just not our own. We were made to glorify God alone. But here's what I want you to also see in this passage. What happened to the church? What happened in the church of Jesus Christ? In opposition it multiplied and it grew and it continues to grow and grow and grow. Even here in McKinney, Texas, even in our living rooms as we gather, that is a testimony, a living testimony that the word of God cannot be stopped. It cannot be imprisoned. It cannot be chained up. Listen, this is our prayer as a church and always has been and always will be that the word of God goes forth in this city and into our neighborhoods and into our homes and into our workplaces and into our schools with power and beauty that we would not become self-exalters, that we would not oppose Jesus, but that we would humble ourselves before him so that in our humbling that we in turn may be exalted you see, the king, King Jesus, his mission is unstoppable. This kingdom of God will not be thwarted. And so we can engage in this battle with the promise of God that if he can be for us, that if he is for us, nothing can be against us. And how do we know that? We know that because of Jesus. We know that because of the one who had evil hands laid upon him, the innocent one, the perfect one, whose the hands of evil men were laid upon him for your sins and for my sins to fulfill the mission of the Father. Let me be abundantly clear. This passage is about the advancement and the sure advancement of the kingdom of God, that the mission of our king is unstoppable in spite of, of any inevitable opposition that may come. So here's how I want to end. And this is the prayer I want for us is from Romans 8. And it says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are reg regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen, church. I love you all so much. Uh, We'll see you next week.